0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Deuteronomy. We've uh, been making our way through the book of Deuteronomy together here at Trinity, uh, chapter by chapter, and we're nearing the end. Uh, We've made it to chapter 31, just a few more chapters after this. Uh, Today we're looking at verses 1 through 29 of Deuteronomy 31. A lengthier passage to read today let's give our close attention uh, to the reading of God's word so Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel and he said to them I am 120 years old today I am no longer able to go out and come in the Lord has said to me You shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise And whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Well, it was... The year 1865 was Good Friday, just a a week after the end of the Civil War when President Abraham Lincoln was shot in the back of the head and he died the next morning at 7.22 a.m. This leader who had taken the country through Its greatest uh, crisis to date was now suddenly gone with the pull of a trigger. There were many uh, post-war challenges that the nation still faced, and and now the nation's leader had suddenly disappeared from the scene. I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like that in in your, your own life. Have you ever had A towering figure in your life unexpectedly be taken away. Someone you looked up to, someone you listened to, someone you followed, someone someone you depended upon. Maybe a faithful mother or father or mentor figure in your life, someone that you thought would be there. Or extending this out a little bit further. Have you you ever lost someone who's who's been a part of your life for so long that you simply cannot fathom life without them? Can't think about what it will mean to live without them. Have you you ever watched a seemingly permanent part of your life disappear? The entire book of Deuteronomy was written to prepare God's people. Not only for the dramatic change of a former slave people who have now wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, settling down in a land. But the book of Deuteronomy is also written to prepare God's people for life without Moses. Moses, who was God's instrument of bringing the people out of slavery. Moses, who was God's appointed leader, leading the people through the years of wilderness wandering, and now Moses is told directly by God himself that he is about to die. He's about to lie down with his fathers. Can you imagine that? The great leader was about to pass from the scene. But he did not want to leave God's people unprepared for what awaited them. And so before his departure, he equipped the people of God to face this pivotal moment without him. And he did so in in at least three ways in this passage that I want us to look at this morning. First, (laughs) by pointing them to the unchanging promise of God in verses 1 through 8. Uh, second, by appointing the regular public reading of Scripture, in verses nine through uh, thirteen, and then third and final, uh, he warned them about the peril of prosperity. And you know, one of the one of the blessings of living through really disruptive periods in history. Is um, is that when when shakeable things are shaken, unshakable things become more clear. Right. When shakeable things are shaken, unshakable things remain. Accordingly, the most basic <coughs> point Moses makes in these first eight verses is that no leadership change will ever alter the reality of the divine leadership of God's people. The divine leadership of God's covenant people. Even after Moses dies and Joshua succeeds him, Moses insists that the one true leader of God's people will always remain the same as he puts it in verse 6 it is the lord your god who goes with you he will not leave you or forsake you and this must have been this must have been incredibly comforting words to hear right the the thought of losing moses must have been terrifying and yet he insists that this change will not in any way alter the reality of divine leadership. He will not leave you even when I'm dead and gone, Moses is saying. Even after every leadership change that unfolds in the Old Testament. You know, you think from 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 Moses to Joshua to the judges to the kings to the prophets and into the New Testament through the the martyrdom of the apostles and leaders in the early church, no change will ever change this. We can bring it closer to home and think about leaders God has raised up here at Trinity. After Pastor Dave, after Rodney Henderson, after Jared Havener, no change will ever change this. Here we are reminded of our unchanging source of security. See, amid amid the swift and varied changes of the world... Moses goes on to sing in the song that is recorded in the next chapter, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Again, when shakable things are shaken, unshakable things are revealed, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And that means for us, beloved, that even when the most life-altering events occur, nothing can change this. Nothing can change this reality. Even when we lose our closest loved ones, no change can change this. Even when our bodies begin to fail, no change can change this. Even when leaders come and go, nothing will ever Change this. Here perhaps we should should stop and reflect on the name of the man who is appointed by God to succeed Moses. Because I think it helps us appreciate this point of changelessness. It is not insignificant (coughs) that Joshua's name means Yahweh is salvation. The Lord is salvation. Nor is it insignificant that Jesus is the English pronunciation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew name, still with me, of Yeshua. In other words, Joshua and Jesus are essentially the same name with the same meaning, Yahweh is salvation but whereas Joshua only gave partial expression to the meaning of his name we need to appreciate the ways that Jesus embodies it to the full right the one the one who promises to never leave us or forsake us is his name to the uttermost he is Yahweh who is our salvation the one who promises to never leave you or forsake you, is the unchangeable God who is your salvation. And no change can change that. No change in your life can alter that. Is it any wonder that Psalms like Psalm 146 tell us then, don't put your trust in princes in whom there is no help but lean On the everlasting arms, as Moses taught Israel. Lean upon the everlasting arms. Arms that in Christ were stretched out for you on Calvary's cross. To conquer your enemies. To win for you salvation. To give you true and everlasting rest. See, an even greater conqueror than Joshua has come... And this is the secret. This is the secret to being strong and courageous as Moses commands all of God's people to be in verse 6. See it there? Be strong and courageous. And when you hear that command, you might be tempted to ask, okay, how? How? How am I supposed to be strong and courageous? How are we supposed to be strong and courageous in a world like ours? Amid all of the changes, amid all of the uncertainty, how are we supposed to do that? Here is the secret. The unchangeable God, who is your salvation, is with you and for you. And he's proven it. He's demonstrated it, not just by leading the Old Testament people of God uh, through Joshua into the promised land. But, but in the cross of Christ. I remember after laying down his life and getting back up again, victorious from the grave, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. No change can change that. And that brings us to the next way Moses equipped the people ...for his departure, which is through the public reading of Scripture. See, because like the Lord himself, the essential message of the Scriptures is unchanging. As the psalmist puts it, your your word, O Lord, is firmly fixed in the heavens. And, And so in verses 9 through 13, we see how Moses made preparation... ...so that the unchanging truths of God's word would continue to be heard from generation to generation. Long after Moses stopped preaching on the plains of Moab. These open-aired sermons, which is what the book of Deuteronomy is, right, the word he, words he announced to Israel, Moses committed to written form. What he preached, he now commits to writing. He, he also, you see, entrusts these sacred writings to priests and Levites, and the elders of Israel for safekeeping, and he establishes a routine, a rhythm in the lives of God's people for the reading, the public reading of Scripture before all Israel. And as we reflect upon the significance of this, we need to see and we need to appreciate the fact that this is the means of God maintaining and renewing his covenant relationship with his people. Not not an unbroken line of perfect leaders, but an unbroken word. Through this practice of reading, the the identity of the covenant people of God is formed and renewed from generation to generation. And we we need to appreciate that this is God's way. I think especially, especially in a time and age like our own, when the public reading of scripture has fallen on hard times. This kind of covenant renewal in which the public reading of scripture is central is exactly what we find the Israelites actually doing once they entered the promised land. So in Joshua 8 verses 34 and 35, they record for us how Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, the stuff we just worked through together. According to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the same practice that is described later in Israel's history. You remember even when the law had been lost for a season, when it was rediscovered, In the temple during the reign of of King Josiah. And when Josiah the great reformer brought about reforms, how did he do it? How did it begin? It began with the public reading of scripture. Listen to 2 Kings 23 verses 1 and 2. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Okay, so the practice, we see it uh, through the reign of Josiah. We see the same practice is true even after the exile when God's people were taken out of the land although the think about it this way although although the promised land although the monarchy although the temple and even the ark of the covenant itself were lost the one thing the people of God took with them when they were carried away into exile was the word of God and when the exiles returned the renewal of God's people How did it happen? It occurred once again as a result of the public reading of Scripture under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. According to Nehemiah 8 verses 3 and 4, Ezra brought the law before everyone. And and get this, from early morning until midday, he read the Scriptures. For hours He read from a special wooden platform that was made for the public reading of Scripture. It must have been one of the the first pulpits ever fashioned. And, And the unfolding story of the public reading of Scripture really reaches a climax in the ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came into the world and publicly began his covenant renewal ministry. How did he do it? How did Jesus begin his public ministry? I think this is incredible. You know, the Word of God in flesh, nonetheless stood up, opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he said, "Today after reading through it today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4, 16 says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Here we have the ultimate covenant renewal again through the public reading of scripture. When Jesus stood up to read he was continuing this same ancient tradition that began with Moses and was carried on by people like Joshua and Josiah Ezra and Nehemiah and if you continue reading the New Testament I think it becomes unmistakably clear that the Lord of the church intends this practice of the public reading of scripture to continue in his church <coughs> excuse me we we need, we need God's unchanging word to stabilize us in an ever-changing world, don't we? I mean, this should be a great comfort to us, friends. You know, we, we live in a culture and a society right now where no one trusts anyone else. Is there, is there somewhere we can go to hear the truth? One thing you can rest assured of is is that when we come together and the Bible is opened up and publicly read, you are hearing words that are true and trustworthy. That is, that is a great comfort. The public reading of Scripture gives us access to the truth. That is a great blessing, too, in the midst of a crazy and upside-down world like the one we live in. We need God's word to be the great ballast that keeps us stable through the changes of this world. So it's, it's no wonder that Paul, Paul told Timothy, remember Timothy, his young pastoral protege, as, as Paul is training up leaders to, to care for the church uh, after the apostolic age, he tells Timothy, he commands Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture or as uh, as Paul puts it in words to the church of Colossae Paul says in Colossians 4 16 and when this letter has been read among you have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea or consider Paul's letter to the church of Thessalonica Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 27 I put you under oath before the Lord To have this letter read to all the brothers. And even when we get to the end of the Bible. In the last book of the Bible. How how do the canonical scriptures conclude? They conclude with this very emphasis. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. And who keep what is written for the time is near I don't think I don't think I've mentioned it it should be obvious since we have the Reformation service this evening today's Reformation Sunday and I can't I can't think of a better theme than this one to reflect on on Reformation Sunday because how does Reformation come how are God's people renewed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit it is through the means of the reading and proclamation of the word of God A public reading of scripture is an essential element of worship that's what, what I want you to take away from this point today and in fact I'll take it a step further and, and and I'll say the public reading of scripture is the most fundamental element of all true Christian worship Because everything else we do, prayer, praise, preaching, sacraments, flows from and is a response to the Word of God. This is why it is a great tragedy in our day that the public reading of God's Word has fallen on such hard times. It's common in some churches for a single verse to be read and and serve as little more than a springboard for pastor so-and-so to launch into story time. It's a travesty. It is a travesty. We, we often talk about the dark ages, the medieval pe- period, which I think in some ways is, is, is often a distortion. There are many authors and scholars today arguing that our present situation in the evangelical church with the absence of the reading of the word of God is no less severe and concerning than that period that we call the Dark Ages. That ought to wake us up. The public reading of Scripture, the hearing of God's Word, is ultimately what changes people by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even even private meditation, you know, what we call personal devos, personal devos in God's Word cannot replace the formation of the covenant community through the public reading of scripture like especially in a culture like ours which has become more and more and more characterized what's been, what's been called expressive by by what's been called expressive individualism the church desperately needs to return to this ancient practice of spiritual and moral formation in community you ever wonder what what it would have been like what would it have been like to worship in a church in, say, the second century? That's a question I've always, I've always asked myself. Thought, you know, what was it like in the early church? Well, we can, we can get some insight into answering that question from a fellow by the name of Justin Martyr. He he lived during the second century, so we're talking pretty early. And if we ask the question to Justin Martyr, what was it like to worship? In the church during his day. Here's, here's what he says. All right? these, are, these are his words. On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gathered together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. <laughs> then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. That's Justin Martyr's summary of Christian worship in the second century. The public reading of Scripture is what renews God's people because we are creatures of the word, beloved. The church is not a man-made institution. You know, it's not furthered by, you know, pragmatic business practices. The church is fundamentally a creature of the word and that means we are gathered and renewed and we mature and are perfected by the word of God and this is why we need to be devoted to the reading and hearing of it and that brings us to the last section where Moses warns us about the peril of prosperity now There is a lot going on in these verses, in this final section, from verses 14 to 29. And it comes at us in rapid succession, okay? Verse 14, the Lord declares to Moses he's about to die. Verse 15, Moses and Joshua are ordered to present themselves before the Lord in the tent of meeting, where Joshua is commissioned. Verses 16 through 18, the Lord predicts Israel's future rebellion and the discipline that he will bring upon his people for breaking the covenant, for their mass apostasy. And in verse 19, the Lord commands Moses to write a song that will serve as a witness against God's people. And we get what is, uh, in many ways, the heart of that song in verse 20. So that's where I want us to focus our attention for just a few more moments. Take a look at verse 20. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. I wonder if you see what lays at the root of the rebellion of God's people there. Here's a a biblical principle we need to heed. That material affluence almost always leads to spiritual amnesia which then can give way to full-blown apostasy. Material affluence almost always leads to spiritual amnesia. Fullness almost always leads to forgetfulness. Abundance almost always leads to idolatry. And so as counterintuitive as it may first sound to us, affluence can be an even greater test of faith than suffering. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if if you agree with that. That affluence, material prosperity, can in reality be an even greater test of faith than suffering. As Jesus declared, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hungry now, Who hunger now, says Jesus, for you shall be satisfied. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. let's, Let's be clear. Let's be absolutely clear about this. Fullness, wealth, prosperity are not evil things in and of themselves. But if we're not careful, if we're not on guard, the blessings of material affluence can easily set us on the path to spiritual forgetfulness until we reach the point where we are saying, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? This is precisely what the Lord predicts. He says it's going to happen in the promised land. And it did. But I want us to appreciate the fact that this principle applies to us too. You know, material affluence breeds spiritual amnesia. And amnesia sets us on the fast track to apostasy. And, and it is it's widely recognized that we live in one of the wealthiest societies that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Now it might not feel that way. And, and this isn't to deny any real material financial challenges that any of us have faced or endure, but we are quite simply some of the most affluent people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. We enjoy unprecedented material comforts and conveniences by by any historical standards. And yet, it's also well documented, and increasingly so, that our exceedingly affluent society is marked by profound anxiety is characterized by this deep loneliness by widespread depression and everyone in the know is signaling the alarm saying something is wrong and we need to remember that it can't be solved with more stuff Or more money in our bank accounts or lower interest rates on our home mortgage loans. So what should we do, right? If this warning gets our attention, what should we do? Well, Moses actually doesn't tell us in this passage. He does not answer that question directly here. He's going to provide an answer. But here the Lord simply predicts Israel's fall from abundance to amnesia. To full blown apostasy, from fullness to absolute forgetfulness. But the good news, the good news, friends, is that Deuteronomy 31 is not the end of the story. Although the death of Moses results in Israel's rebellion. Do you notice that? Do you notice that emphasis at the end of this passage? That The consequence of Moses' death will be the rebellion of God's people. Although Moses' death results in rebellion, the death of Jesus Christ results in redemption. See this emphasis? When when Moses died, bad things will happen, God says. When he died, the people will rise up and, and chase after other gods. They will forsake the covenant God made with them, verse 16. So the death of Moses is linked to the rebellion of God's people, but the death of Jesus has an entirely different result, doesn't it? The death of Jesus results in redemption and renewal and the resurrection of God's people. See, through the the all-conquering love of the true and better Joshua, we are not only given a new and better life we are also taught how to live by the cross of Christ. You see, the cross where Jesus conquered, it is not only where life was won for us, it is the place where we learn how to live. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to end this morning by just lovingly warning you to beware what the Apostle John calls the pride of life. Beware Affluence, abundance, again, abundance in life is not evil. But beware the real danger of forgetting God. Beware the danger of becoming fat and full on material abundance. Beware what Jesus calls the deceitfulness of riches. So, as we've already learned in Deuteronomy, life isn't found there. It is found in Jesus, our Joshua, the unchanging Lord who saves his people from their sins. So fix your heart on him because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross to make us citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Praise him. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we pray that in in our own fullness, in in the abundance of the, the good gifts that we enjoy, that we would not become forgetful, that affluence would not lead us to amnesia. Help us, Lord, we pray that we would not grow fat and kick. We pray that you would give us the grace of thirsting, and hungering after something even better, life himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.